The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Radio Reversal is broadcast live on Brisbane Community Radio Station 4ZZZ, located on unceded Jagara and Turrbal country. If this podcast jumps about a bit at times, that's because we have edited the broadcast to remove music, news, sponsorship notices, and other features of a live radio show. To hear the full version of the show, you can access on-demand and streaming at 4ZZZ.org.au. Radio Reversal is a show subjecting aspects of everyday life to political, theoretical, philosophical, irreverent and warm-hearted analysis, produced by a diverse and fluid collective of awesome folks. For more info, find us on Twitter at Radio Reversal or facebook.com slash Radio Reversal. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, the Turbal people to the north of the river, and the Yagara and Ugarabal people to the south of the river, and their elders past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded. Mutual, 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 this is the mutual broadcasting system. As radio gets called everything from gag to gadget, but fate is to make radio a power in a world of peace and war. And the show you are listening to today is Radio Reversal. Today on the show we are going to be talking a lot about political morality and social choice. Musing on the philosophical content of some kind of a broader political economic critique. This is very much in the spirit of Radio Reversal. Good morning, Zedheads. Uh, it's 10.08 and of course you are listening to Radio Reversal. Um, I'm Joan in the studio today with me is Natalie on this beautiful grey autumnal morning. (laughs) (laughs) What passes for autumnal in Brisbane. (laughs) Yeah, it's so welcome actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How are you doing Nat? Yeah, doing really well. Um, Excited to to be here again um, this lovely Thursday morning to talk about all the things that have been occupying our brains over the last week, which Mm. I think is um, the the idea of natural disasters. Mm. So, yeah, last week on the show, um, it was extremely wet, as you may remember. (laughs) Um, I hope that you all held up okay um, through the rains and that um, none of you had property or family or other other parts of your lives too badly affected. Um, But we thought that, you know, given the wild weather and Cyclone Debbie and everything else that's followed... Um, in its wake or in her wake, I should say. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll get into that later, why we call why we gender cyclones. But um, anyway, we, we thought it was a good opportunity to jump into the idea of natural disasters, um, which I believe Radio Reversal has covered in the past, maybe a few years ago, quite some time ago, I think. But, um, you know, we, we always like to revisit and um, take fresh looks at things um, and Natalie, being an emotional geographer, was right into it. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think we can um, use some of the stuff we've been talking about in, mm. in recent weeks around um, effect, around emotional geographies, and around some of the, um, I guess, the social and political work that, mm-hmm. that emotion does, mm-hmm. um, and look at natural disasters through that lens. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating because I think... Well, hopefully for those, it'll be fresh in our minds having experienced this. I mean, not that last week's events were really a disaster um, for us in Brisbane. Yeah. But um, I think maybe we kind of experienced some of the collective emotions around a big weather event. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think because um, because of the floods in, in 2011 being mm-hmm. so recent for many of us and, and many of us did experience those, mm. those particular floods as a disaster, um, 
when it starts to come through again, I think mm. it can can bring up a lot of those feelings mm-hmm. and a lot of those those past experiences. Just mm-hmm. the in terms of the fear that it might happen again, mm-hmm. um, or in some ways, you know, it, it is almost a very literal revisiting of or reliving of those experiences mm-hmm. for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, natural disasters or you know, a big yeah weather events is probably a better um, term for what we um, experienced last Thursday, but. They are interesting to me because they occupy everyone's mind almost completely as soon as they start. So Anna and I last week talked about how hard it was to be on the radio talking about something that wasn't the rains. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. It's that one that one um, time when talking about the weather doesn't feel quite like the awkward small talk it normally yeah. does. <laughs> um, so, okay, great. I think maybe before we jump in, we'll just kind of give a brief um, preview of what, what's to come on the show this morning. Uh, so I think first we will be talking about, um, yeah, emotions and the self and, and experiences of disaster and how how the, how the a disaster might constitute, might um, dist- or not destroy, but uh, damage or recreate someone's sense of identity or their self or their home and the way they relate to place. Um including um, trauma and reco- recovery mm-hmm. efforts as well. So like the trauma itself is one thing. And then after when you're trying to rebuild, at least in the reading that I was doing, it seemed like that sometimes is even the more emotionally difficult part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, and I, I think, um, and we can talk about this a little bit, but I think it's actually what happens in the recovery rather than the event itself that mm-hmm. defines whether or not something becomes this kind of big traumatic disaster mm-hmm. in people's in people's minds and in, in their lived experiences, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, we're also we're interested as well in the kind of publics that emerge through natural disasters and how um, a disaster can shape or um, shape the social or, or tear social fabric apart and how people how that kind of plays in with people's experiences. So obviously, when you are affected by a disaster, it's not only you; it's also the the kind of place where you act, enact your social identity with your neighbours, with your friends, your co-workers, um, people who occupy the same physical space as you is kind of gone and that's important as well. Um, and then in the second half of the show, I think we're going to look, we're going to interrogate basically the idea of natural disaster. Um, we're going to look a bit harder at this concept of the natural. So uh, Radio Reversal has a long and proud history of <laughs> destabilising the natural. <laughs> Uh, and I think we're gonna we're gonna use some of that this morning as well. Um, so we're gonna look at how we understand this idea of nature with the natural disasters, what that suggests about our relationship with the natural world. Um, obviously, climate change is becoming a bigger and bigger part of these conversations, and uh, also so the idea that we are somehow separate from nature is no longer holding too much too much water if you forgive the pun (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely I mean how long can we describe things that we know are being worsened or exacerbated or even created by climate change Mm -hmm. uh, which of course is the result of human activity how long can we continue to describe them as natural Mm -hmm. disasters as though these are phenomenon that would be happening whether or not we're here when that is decreasingly the case yeah exactly and uh, we're looking at yeah some of the political economy of climate change you know this light easy topics for a Thursday morning (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And um, we also want to talk about how natural disasters um, affect people differently, like how uh, experiences and divisions of, of inequality of class, um, race and gender 
actually shape people's experiences of being hit by a natural disaster. Yeah, because things aren't things aren't always like a disaster is not an entirely shared experience, and yeah. whether or not something becomes disastrous for you and yours um, depends a lot on how exposed you are to a particular hazard or or a particular event, and that exposure is something that's mediated um, socially as well as mm-hmm. spatially. Yeah. Sounds good. So <laughs> first half of the show, I think, yeah, will be emotional geography and the kind of experiences of disaster. And then the second half, we're going to get down to the hard-nosed kind of critical interrogation of the, even what even is a natural disaster anyway. Yeah, sounds fun. <laughs> so we're talking on the show this morning about natural disasters. Um, well, it's natural with a big with a few question marks after it. Yeah, I mean, you can basically just try and hear the air quotes when we right. say natural, right? Uh, natural. Yeah. Mm, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you would like to participate in this conversation, if you've got stories about Debbie or other um, events, if maybe the floods in 2011 is probably a, a common reference point for a lot of people, um, we would love to hear your contributions and stories and um, thoughts. So please um, text us um, 0420626733 or call us 32521555 um, while we're playing a song so that we can answer and have a chat with you. Uh, We have a Facebook page, um, which is just facebook.com forward slash Radio Reversal, or if you search Radio Reversal, you will find it. Uh, we have a email, radioversal at gmail.com. We have many ways to communicate <laughs> with you and we're keen to use all of them, so don't hold back. If you have thematic song requests as well, we'd love to hear those. Um, last week, Anna and I were, were unable to resist playing songs that were about the rain, which means that this week I don't have that many songs because <laughs> I used them all last week. So, <laughs> Yeah, please write in with your suggestions, especially yeah. if um, I think Joe was finding beforehand that a lot of the songs we could find about sort of natural disasters were referencing rain and floods mm, and stuff. And water, so, yeah. Yeah, if you've got... <laughs> um, fires, um, earthquakes. Tornadoes. Tornadoes. Throw at us. Really keen. Um, okay. So, yeah, we, um, we're going to jump in now, I think, just to sort of putting a bit of conceptual scaffolding around the idea of the natural disaster. Um, so, Nat... What are you? I think, as yeah, as an emotional geographer, you're um, the the expert in the room on this one. Yeah, that's terrifying. I love I love the phrase how emotional geographer just sounds like I'm a geographer who's really emotional, um, which is <laughs> is look, also kind of fair. That. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually a fair assessment. But yeah, so emotional geographers really we study the relationship between um, space and feelings, which is obviously. Um, Seems obvious, but but it's basically the idea that emotions are both spatially and socially constructed. So um, it's about looking at those relationships and, and taking emotions as a kind of source of data in order to understand those relationships, I guess. But in the context of disasters then, um, you know, th- they leave their mark on us and, and it's not just on the physical landscapes of our lives, although that's really important too, but also on our bodies, how we understand and how we connect to places um, and the contours of our relationships with others. And even as the waters recede or the fires go out and after the mud and debris are cleared away, even after the built environment is rebuilt and ecosystems re-stabilise, our emotional geographies can be permanently altered. Mm. Um, and process of recovery, it's not, it's not just physical, although that does tend to be what we focus on. Um, there's emotional and psychological and relational components to recovery as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a long process. Yeah. And I think one of the difficulties about um, disasters is that they are, well... You know, like Cyclone Debbie, for instance, is crammed into 
a time frame of mm. cyclone coming, cyclone coming, cyclone coming, cyclone hit, cyclone over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Whereas for people, um, and then, you know, you have a rebuilding period where people get their houses back or rebuild their property um, or what have you. But it's, you know, for, for people who have to spend years, you know, fighting with insurance companies and living yeah. in temporary accommodation and trying to figure all that out, um, it can go on for years and years and then it just sort of disappears from the collective um attention. Yeah, because I mean, natural disasters make, you know, while they're, while they're actually happening in that moment, they tend to make for really great TV and oh, really yeah. great media stories, you know. there's Rolling coverage on Channel 7, like, all of Thursday last week. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. And there's, you know, everything from, you know, the tragic human interest story to the, to the brave battler to the, you know, foolish person on a jet ski or, you know, <laughs> sharks out of place. Or there's snakes. always that guy on the jet ski. There's always a guy on the if jet ski. If you're that guy on the jet ski, please get in touch. <laughs> yeah, we would love to hear about, about um, how and why, um, although it does look super fun. To I mean, yeah. Yeah, does, I kind of enjoy, I always enjoy those segments because the journalists are so, like, scoldy. Yeah. Like, you know, like, really just putting his life at risk here, as you can see in the background, there's a guy on a jet ski. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, meanwhile, then the journalists are being scolded by other people because the journalists are out there standing there with their microphones yeah. being buffeted by these exactly. you know, gale force winds. <laughs> yeah, it's just this mutual um, shaming of other people's behaviour during floods, <laughs> which, which I suppose is fun and interesting. Um, but I, I think kind of related to the timeframes that we're dealing with here when it comes to recovery, um, and this is something we've seen recently in the disaster management literature over the last uh, probably 10 to 20 years has sort of shifted to focusing on this notion of resilience. Mm. So rather than trying to um, mitigate or adapt to the impacts of disasters, it's actually kind of trying to, I suppose, um, normalise the idea that there are always going to be disturbances and disruptions and disasters. Mm -hmm. And so instead focusing not on how we prevent those things, but how we can more effectively bounce back, how, mm -hmm. how we can have that quick sort of recovery um, of a complex system. So it's kind of this um, like really pragmatic I approach, I suppose, and I, and I think it is, it is interesting in how it does sort of try and accept and build into our consciousness the idea that, um, you know, things are going to happen, mm -hmm. um, things are going to get bad sometimes. Um, but I, I do think it can get a little bit iffy because I think we start to apply this notion of resilience to individuals and it mm -hmm. becomes about rather than looking at the resilience of a complex system like um, like a city, mm. we're instead looking at it, how, how are you? Are you, you know, psychologically resilient enough yeah. to bounce back, you know? Um, and I think then it becomes about an individual's responsibility, personal responsibility, their own sort of personal mental health and circumstances, mm. denying all of those social and political and economic factors mm. that might um, impact on a person's um, resilience to a given event. Um, and I think it, we start to erase how disasters themselves are at least partly socially constructed yeah, and socially right. produced. Well, one of the interesting um, things, so Nat um, sent me a lot of articles to read this week about disasters and the way people cope with them. And um, there was one uh, couple who was having a really tough time. This researcher had sort of done um, some qualitative research with people affected by floods and this couple were having a tough time and the... Um, one of the phrases that one of the, um, that the woman said that stuck in my mind was she she said, "We said that we weren't going to let the flood get the better of us, but we have." <laughs> yeah, and wow. so you start to think about the flood as um, kind of almost well. We'll talk about this later on, but having intentionality, and also the the problem really isn't in in a lot of cases of isn't 
that the flood happened. It's that insurance companies are terrible at paying out, that yeah. there's no like proper um, you know, governments possibly aren't really prepared for this and have nothing really in place. No one, there's all of these bureaucratic hoops to jump through and people are passing the buck at every stage. Yeah, and instead it becomes about your own. And I, and I think we see this particularly in Australia with some of the um, narratives that we tend to have around kind of, um, you know, this bush identity is that, mm. is that you know, there's there's this expectation of stoicism that, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is just what Australia does. We're a hard people living in a hard place and mm. so we've just got to find ways to cope and, and suck it up and deal with it and mop your store out and, you know, she'll be right. Mm. Um, but, of course, yeah, like if, if insurance companies aren't, aren't paying up or if um, governments are not taking responsibility for, you know, maintaining critical infrastructure in a way that's going to minimise mm. harm, um, if we're not looking at the quality of our housing stock and how that is mm-hmm. affecting perhaps the, the ability of people in in rentals or or other kinds of less secure accommodation um, to respond or to prepare, you know, we're we're just kind of shifting that responsibility. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, one one thing that we've been talking about a little bit so far is how, um, you know, disasters are more complicated than being some kind of... um, one-off event. They're Mm -hmm. not this singular moment in time that we then sort of scramble around to. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually a whole heap of processes that go into producing natural disasters, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, But also in the recovery process that that sort of can define whether or not something is experienced um, as a disaster, I Mm -hmm. suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a book I might um, mention quite a few times because I I really love it, um, Mm. by Ian Convery, Maggie Mort, Josephine Baxter and Kathy Bailey, which I will probably shorten to Convery at all because otherwise um, I'll never get through it, um, (laughs) called Animal Disease and Human Trauma, Emotional Geographies of Disaster. And they were writing about the foot and mouth disease outbreak in Cumbria in 2001 in the UK. And about how um, so this is a this is a disease that that was affecting livestock um, in this predominantly sort of farming agricultural um, community, and so they were looking a lot at what makes an event a disaster, and what are the factors that make um, a disaster or an event traumatic. Um, and they're particularly interested in the idea of collective trauma, collective trauma, which is um, the damage done to the social fabric and ties that that constitute community. So. Um, how a disaster can actually not only cause personal or individual kind of trauma, but also how our relationships and the way we understand ourselves and our place in the world Mm. um, can also receive um, a kind of damage and a kind of lasting damage in Mm. the form of this collective trauma, which I think is a really interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But they sort of suggest that we should think about disasters in non-linear, non-prescriptive and humanistic ways. So... Um, sometimes things become disasters in retrospect as we understand their impact. We frame them in our memory as the thing that did the damage, Mm. even if at the time maybe we didn't think about it that way. Mm. Um, They also talk about how a given event isn't always a disaster. So a flood or a fire um, is not inherently disastrous. There's Mm -hmm. a whole heap of other things Mm -hmm. that that make it that way. Um, And that there's lots of relational components to this. So a disaster is more likely to become traumatic for affected people if they feel like there's someone to blame, Mm. um, if they feel like their suffering is being ignored, Mm -hmm. um, or if there becomes this kind of hard division between people who are affected by something and people who are unaffected by something. Right, right. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like that might play out in the Australian context or at least the Queensland context Mm. with um, 
I I don't know, I felt like there was a real undercurrent, especially with Debbie recently, about the difference between the regions and the city, right? Yeah. That, you know, regional areas, just you know, they're doing it tough and people in the city don't know like anything about it. And then when um, last week when there was heavy rain in Brisbane and everyone freaked out and cancelled <laughs> everything and stayed home, um, when really like, um, you know, maybe my, well, my perspective is as someone who lives in Brisbane is that um, the effects here were not like really as maybe as bad as people thought they were going to be. Like the, the big rains that were supposed to hit about three o'clock last Thursday sort of didn't really hit. And um, we, you know, like probably many of us could have gone to work or school and the the reaction while like you know it's justified because no one wants to be responsible if one person even one person gets hurt it was a bit like um not quite like aligned to what actually happened whereas it whereas in north queensland they're like (laughs) well you know (laughs) we had a real cyclone up here (laughs) yeah yeah you guys just had that x cyclone Mm. yeah no Mm -hmm. and I, i thought you know i thought it was really interesting how um and again, I think maybe some of this comes back to um, to how the way we respond to current events is shaped by our responses to previous events. But how, you know, I was like, oh, okay, well, it's nice. I, I don't have to go into work today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, probably best that we're not all kind of on the roads and, mm-hmm. and getting into accidents and stuff. Maybe that's sensible. Um, what I didn't expect was to hear that people are like fighting over the loaf of bread at the local supermarket oh, really? and things like that. And you think, cut, cut. Come on, like, like even if this is bad, it's gonna be bad for a day. Mm, like, it's not. Yeah. This is not like floods where we're gonna be, um, you know, potentially isolated in our houses for mm. for a week or weeks on end. Mm-hmm. But um, it seemed to evoke that response mm-hmm. in people. Yeah. And, like, I, I mean, I, maybe I just have a short memory, but I don't seem to remember that formally being the case. Or, or were we always? Yeah. That kind of- I think a lot of it has to do with our sort of increasing, um, uh, sort of tapped in. Uh, the level to which we're tapped into one another's lives and experience means that the kind of borderline hysteria around events like that, weather events, can spread a lot more quickly. Like if you didn't, yeah. if you didn't have social media or the internet or even like rolling coverage on TV, for instance, you'd just kind of be like, "Well, it's raining pretty heavily." Yeah, <laughs> you would yeah, have to judge. True, yeah. You'd basically have to judge from what you saw in front of you. Like, are the roads still? passable yes okay well I'll just go to work and uh, is my house flooding well no not right now um maybe it does or doesn't look like it will whereas I suppose um we have this whole other layer of like kind of spreading because you're hearing all about what everyone else is doing and thinking and feeling it's it becomes this kind of zeitgeist of a natural disaster yeah so it reminds me of something that happened when I was a kid we were on um sort of a family holiday in in Marimbula staying in this little cabin in this little holiday park and um one night there was there was just sounded like a really big storm mm-hmm. and the power went out and so we're all, um, you know, the person who was managing the hotel came around with candles and, and matches and stuff. So we lit candles and told stories and had a really nice night, right? It was great. Mm. And then the next morning we go for a walk and there's like roofs floating in the river Whoa. and a tornado had actually <laughs> yeah. come through and we had no idea. We yeah. certainly, this was pre-4G, so none of us were um, on our mobile phones checking yeah, right. um, <laughs> You know, ch- checking what was actually happening. As far mm-hmm. as we were concerned, it was it was just a storm with a blackout and some oddly loud roaring noises. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah, we we sort of had no idea, and so we weren't fearful mm. at all. I mean, I don't know if my parents were. Maybe they knew what was going on, but if they were, they hid it from us very well. Mm. Um, and I think one of the thing, interesting things to me about um, natural disasters or weather events is is this kind of sense of collective feeling, which mm. to me, I feel as though we don't often have that anymore because of our lives being, um, you know, increasingly precarious, increasingly com- 
compartmentalized and individualized um we it's it's not too often that you get a bunch of people feeling the same thing at the same time yeah. uh but last week um and certainly during the floods uh i think that was well my experience and the experience of a lot of people so when i was at home last thursday um during the day like not at work and i was i switched the tv on which i ordinarily would never do yeah and it was just yeah rolling flood coverage and they went there was nothing no news but you still felt like okay i better watch this to like stay in touch with what's happening and you know everyone is talking about on social media and it's kind of like the common experience which um yeah it's it's not it it is not common to have that anymore and i wonder if that's part of like the odd appeal of these sort of things really <laughs> yeah absolutely i think i think there's a kind of camaraderie or something that that goes mm. along with it and and everyone shares the you know funny memes of the things that people have painted on the boards out the front of their share house yeah. or um <laughs> Again, the the people jet skiing like like it's it is it does create this narrative that we can all kind of get into um, for a while. But like I, th- I think the news coverage thing is really interesting. I remember during the 2011 floods, my house was fine, um, but we had some sort of um, people who family and friends who'd been flooded out of some of the more inner city suburbs had had come to stay with us. Um, so we we're a bit sort of cramped in, and and it was a bit stressful and. We were just watching the coverage, which again, yeah, we'd never sort of sit yeah. there with the TV on for yeah. all day, but we were. And then sort of I think the second or third day into it, I just had to be like, no, okay, we're just sitting here <laughs> getting collectively more and it's, more anxious. Yeah, that's right. We're not actually doing anything useful because we still you know, roads still sort of weren't really passable, so we couldn't even really get anywhere mm. or do anything. It's like, how is this helping? This is yeah. not really a constructive behaviour for yeah. us. Yeah, it's interesting how emotions get constructed through that as well. So. Yeah, if you might ordinarily not have been too anxious or you might be able to go on with things because there's this collective anxiety um, that influences your experience as well. We have been talking a bit about how how natural disasters are sort of constructed and experienced collectively uh, and the different kinds of emotions that arise through these events. and I think I would like to talk a bit about uh, how disasters impact homes and sense mm-hmm. of being at home or having a home because one of the kind of more horrible and unsettling things I think about having your home destroyed or having you know your home um, even just severely impacted, even if you can rebuild eventually, is that it it makes you into a sort of migrant. You're occupying the same physical space, but you're not at home, mm. <laughs> which I think opens up a really interesting conceptual understanding of what home even is. So because we think of it as just, oh, my home is where I live. But what if you can go back to where you live, but it's just so incredibly changed that you can't, you know, you're not at home, even though you're there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I, th- I think, you know, it's something that happens um when people are displaced from natural disasters, I remember it a fair bit during the 2011 floods that people would talk about flood refugees, mm. you know, um, and where, where you know, obviously people are not, you know, fleeing across borders. It's n- it's not the same thing as being a being an actual refugee. But mm-hmm. um, the idea of being dislocated within the place where you're supposed to be able to be, mm. being um, unable, and, and the fact that it's it's simply fundamentally changed, as mm-hmm. you're saying, in a way that um, it's not just a matter of rebuilding a structure and then it's all going to be the same or, or as it once was, that sometimes the the physical and emotional landscapes of our places can can change fundamentally as a result of mm. some of these impacts that can leave people feeling um, permanently displaced from them. Yeah. So um, there was an article that we read this week by um, Stephanie Morris about, um, yeah, I guess like the emotional 
emotional flood, emotion, emotions around floods and disasters. Can't actually remember what the name of it was now. Uh, but anyway, she um, oh, so she'd done research on Hurricane Katrina, and she quoted one of her respondents, David, and he said, "One of the hardest things to see in my old neighbourhood is that there's nobody there. It used to be full of people, and now everything's gone." You can't ever prepare to leave your life behind. I thought that I would still be able to go home and save something. My wife kept telling me to go into the house because it was still my home, but I didn't want to go in because it just didn't look the same, it didn't feel the same. I remember it as perfect, and I went back to something that was totally different and strange to me. I was supposed to stay two more days, and I just couldn't do it. Mm. So that's, I guess, yeah, one of the more heartbreaking (laughs) um, stories about that. And, yeah, it's, um, well, even, even that snippet shows an interesting like interesting um little tidbit there he said i remember it as perfect yeah <laughs> which is uh obviously no one has no one's home is perfect and no. <laughs> while you live there you don't experience it as perfect but then when you're displaced from it there's a whole lot of remembering and replacing work going on yeah and i th- i think the, the interest there's an interesting question around rebuilding that i, th- I think is going to become more and more imperative um as a result of climate change and the and um, the increased and and changing distribution of some of these disasters, I mean, I I think that's maybe it's a slightly off topic, but I think um, we will be seeing the patterns of of weather events like cyclones. They're going to track into new areas that that are not equipped to deal with them. Mm. Um, which is not to say that you know any place can ever be equipped to deal with like a a really serious Category Five cyclone, but um, but there are places that are built to withstand these disasters that, that mm-hmm. are prepared for them and that also have a kind of embedded local knowledge about what to do and, and how to cope and, and where to go and how to keep yourself safe and, and all of those things. And they're going to be tracking to areas where there's not that knowledge and where there's not that sort of infrastructure that's mm. going to be really troubling. But I also think we're going to have to, this question about rebuilding, I think there's the possibility that some places we just actually will not be able to mm. rebuild to. And, and you do see it in, in the survivors of some disasters who have actually no inclination to go back there because yeah. it is just ruined for them. Yeah. Um, there are also going to be more and more spaces that are simply just completely unsafe and that they cannot really yeah. go back to. I mean, close to home, I'm thinking of Christchurch, right? Yeah. Um, which is strange to me because I grew up quite close to there um, in the sort of next city down mm. uh, called Dunedin. And Christchurch was like kind of a big part of our... Um, our kind of urban identities or identities as, as residents of that city because they were like our rivals because they yeah. were slightly bigger <laughs> than us and slightly more, um, more uh, you know, sophisticated, yeah. <laughs> which is strange for a tiny New Zealand city. But, uh, yeah, it's strange to me that I just that, that, that city doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, it's a really weird feeling. And, uh, yeah, I think you're right. There probably will be places where you have to be like, we can't rebuild, we've got to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it comes up with this, this idea about retreat and how, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, yeah, the, the idea of planned retreat is, is becoming, you know, this is almost surrendering. This is, this is the resilience discourse that says, actually, the only way we can be resilient is if we pack up and mm. go. But And there's also but a weird, I think, a weird fetishization of, of staying. Mm. Um, like, you know, I've, like... You always hear after some disaster someone who refused to leave their house or whatever being hailed as a hero or what have you, which, okay, like, you know, those, these people have their own reasons for doing that. And I just find it slightly strange that there is such a, um, well, not strange, not strange at all, actually. I do understand it. But uh, I think it's one of those moments where you're like, humans are really, really weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're really weird creatures that yeah. we feel the need to stay in this space that's being completely destabilized around us. Yeah. And we're like, no, we've got to go. And, and, and that's, um, 
you know, seen as like something really great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I grew up for the south and sort of South Australia and Victoria. And so the natural disasters I think about are fires. And, mm-hmm. and every so often, you know, the whole place would just would just go up, yeah. right? Um, and yeah, there would always be those stories of, of, of the, the person. And it was often, again, this, this I use the word because it is perfect, stoic yeah. farmer who um, they, they stay to defend their land they stay to defend their home and it really is about this this we're staying to defend mm. this is this is our line of resistance this is what we're doing this mm. is how we protect ourselves and and our animals and our land and all of these things and our possessions um but yeah it is it a really romanticized image and i and i just remember thinking countless times i'm sure there's many many good reasons including including the difficulties in in recovering and getting the kind of assistance you need to rebuild um after such a catastrophic event but um and the fact that some of these natural disasters can be that can be it for a lot of mm. for a lot of farms and and for a lot of small businesses in particular. But you know, I just remember thinking, God, what do you th- just get out? Like yeah. it is a firestorm. The air is burning. <laughs> just go. <laughs> um, but yeah, perhaps my um, survival instinct overrides yeah. um, my own sort of personal sense of um, wanting to defend and and stake a line. Mm. Mm. But I think um, that can it, it changes according to context. So. We're going to talk a little more in the second half of the show about Hurricane Katrina because I think it's a really fascinating example um, that brings a lot of these kind of political economy points to the fore. Um, But a lot of people at Katrina stayed in their houses because they had no other options. They had no money. Um, There there were so many bureaucratic bungles that, um, you know, for instance, an Amtrak train left the city the day before the cyclone with hundreds of seats vacant that they'd offered to the city and the city said no. Um, and people, yeah, there was it was completely <laughs> screwed up at almost every point, so people had to stay. But the way I, I remember that and, and the kind of construction and media understanding of or portrayal of those people staying in their homes was like how stupid they were mm. or how wrong it was to stay in a house that was clearly flooding and how how silly, why didn't they get out, blah, blah. So whereas con- contrast that to like the stoic Aussie farmer just sticking around to defend his land. <laughs> yeah. It's a, bit, it's a bit revealing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like maybe before we just move on to the next point or, or a track, there's... Um, just on that point about mm. how the landscapes can change and how the, the homes can change, coming back to that that example of the foot and mouth disease outbreak in mm. Cumbria. Um, because all of these places that used to be farmland became places where they had to cull all these animals and they would just put them in, sorry, this is, this is quite difficult, but they would just, you know, have to slaughter their livestock and, and dispose of them and have these improvised burial sites and, and burning pyres. It was all pretty pretty horrendous. And mm. and so this this was a transformation that was sensory and embodied. The air smelled different and mm. tasted different. Um, and areas that were once filled with life became filled with carcasses and, and there were no longer bird sounds. There were gunshots and industrial noises. Mm. Um and so it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, then to why people could not return in the same yeah. way because those those became these incredibly traumatic sites mm. of, of death and bereavement mm-hmm. rather than this life-giving, nurturing, green, beautiful landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to keep going with um, chatting about natural disasters um, this morning. And in the first half of the show, we um, sort of covered... Uh, I guess the emotions involved with natural disasters, well, very, you know, briefly, there's a lot in that space. But um, we talked about how that affects individuals and um, collective and collective experiences of disaster, um, public emotions uh, and, the, you know, the timescales of disasters, the efforts to rebuild 
um, how all of these things get constructed and constituted in the experience of a disaster. Now, I think we're going to um, start sort of interrogating the idea of, of, of the natural within natural disaster. Uh, as you know, as our want, we like to destabilise anything natural <laughs> on Radio Reversal. Well, frankly, most things. Well, most at things, all. yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, yeah, what do you reckon, Nat? What are you, what, what's your quarrel with the natural this oh, morning? So many. Okay, just this morning, right. Oh, just um, in general. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, you know, I, th- I think when we talk about natural disasters, um, yeah, I guess there's two points where we can interrogate this from. There's uh, probably more. I'm sure we'll find them. Um, there, there's the angle of climate change, which says that, you know, we are so now, like human activity is is so materially changing um, the basic kind of biophysical and meteorological systems of our planet that, you know, can we, I mean, although, you know, you can never really point to one event and say that's because of climate change. But we mm. know that the tendency is um, for these climactic events, these disastrous events to get worse and worse, to get mm-hmm. more frequent and to travel to new um, areas that, that, that might be unfamiliar with them. We know that floods and droughts and bushfires are all likely to get more extreme. And um, just this week, there's um, there's been a catastrophic landslide in Colombia, killing 254 people mm. at this count. Um, hundreds more missing, so that count might rise. And there's also been a landslide in East Java. Mm. Um, so these are different sides of the world, yeah. all experiencing these these really intense events. Um, and thanks to um, Radio Reversal Alumni Phone for yeah, thanks for shooting that out. us that email. Um, I think it's you know I'm really quite bad at keeping up with the news, shamefully, but. Uh, even you know, I had not, I definitely not heard about these these events, which I feel like is kind of just because there's so many of them, right? You can't keep yeah. up with what is the latest disaster and whether or not it's kind of bad enough, quote unquote, to merit lots of airtime. Well, and I think also because we're having our own, and so that yeah, that just true. dominates <laughs> it, and and not definitely not on on the same scale. Um, but yeah, you know, it, we do just um, get get caught up in our own little cyclonic worlds, and and Debbie mm. took up took mm-hmm. up a lot of space. Um, but I also think, um, in addition to climate change, there's this no, notion of the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. which is um, as I think we've talked about on Radio Reversal before, um, that we're entering a new kind of geological time mm. era, mm-hmm. uh, moving on from the Holocene mm-hmm. to to the Anthropocene, which is basically um, further acknowledgement that um, it's not just kind of climactic. Um, change. We are actually changing the physical structure of mm, of the earth. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So anthro human us. Yes. <laughs> um, earth bad. Yeah. <laughs> bad things happen. Uh, which and I think it's important that um, this is not just to do with some kind of vague idea of the planet being in trouble, because I think it, well, it's, a lot of us have this collective consciousness of of. Um, you know, bad things are happening to the earth. That's why we use um, canvas shopping bags and we um, reuse, you know, our wa- reusable water bottles. <laughs> it's been a real plastic water bottles theme on Radio Reversal <laughs> in the last few weeks. Um, or, or, you know, we um, buy electric cars or whatever. But I think it's really important to think about um, climate change in the Anthropocene as um, political economy. Like mm. this is industry this is the way we structure, we organise our economic system, is destroying the earth. It's not us as individuals. It's um, the way our lives kind of work. And you, in a way, like while things like even solar power, for instance, and shifting to renewable energies would help, there's so much going on <laughs> that mm. um, small you know, individual decisions are 
almost terrifyingly um, just screaming into the void. Yeah, and I, I think it comes back to a little bit like what we were talking about earlier about how um, there's this onus put on sort of the individual's resilience and the individual's mm. capacity to adapt. This is, again, this focus on an individual's behaviour, which neglects the fact that just to s- we have built a system that to survive within it requires mm. destroying the earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so changing yep. our behaviour is is not necessarily going to be the route to yeah. actually changing that. That's it, definitely. Um the Adani Carmichael coal mine has been in the news a lot this week. Oh, my God. Close to home. Um, yesterday, some grandparent activists, or maybe it was, no, I think it was Monday, grandparent activists were occupying Jackie Trad's office in West End. Um, I believe three of them were arrested. That's what I heard, but uh, don't uh, take that as... <laughs> if if you're listening, grandparents, you're awesome. Nice and work. And we love you. Well done. <laughs> Very good. Thank so, you. But that's just one example of one of, of these massive projects that so few people, um, or at least like there's a lot of public resistance to, but mm. because they are kind of just like that's how our economic system is propped up on things like this is that they they almost become inevitable, really. Um, if it's not Adani, it'll be something else. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, love, read, hate how how <laughs> the approvals process is that, is disregarding so many of the biophysical components of, of what's happening. So not only are we, you know, neglecting the fact that if we want to prevent catastrophic climate change, we need to keep coal on the ground. Mm. Um, but also the fact that they're going to be given unlimited water mm-hmm. as as though there is unlimited water. <laughs> yes, <that's right. laughs> unlimited water license. Woo-hoo. Yeah, so that'll just be there and that won't cause any other problems. Yeah. 29 million litres a day. It sounds totally cool. Yeah, bizarre. Uh, bizarre. But yes, moving on from <laughs> our personal problems with the Danu, um, uh I think just before we we take a break, one important point that I wanted to get out there is that it's really interesting the reaction to anyone who tries to talk about natural disasters as having a link to climate change and as mm. a, in this way that we're talking about them as having a link to our political and economic system. Um, there's kind of two responses I think. One is like, "What are you, some kind of greenie?" <laughs> and yes. the second one is like, <laughs> "Yeah." <laughs> and the second one is, um, "How dare you try to minimize like the human tragedy and yeah. exploit it for your own political gain? Like, how dare you talk about climate change when people are dying?" Yeah, it's as like though mm, these things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like as though they're not already already political. As yeah, though, as though what's happening that's right is not. So it becomes yeah. politics as though the event itself was not already born out of political processes that go back a really long way. Yeah, and I think that work that gets derided as being politicisation is actually just try an attempt to reveal mm. the kind of the, the political economics mm. at work mm-hmm. rather than actually, you know, and necessarily capitalise on exactly. it or, or to invent it. Yeah, fascinating. Um, politics is a dirty word often and it does a lot of interesting work in sort of just putting aside um, yeah. genuine critiques. Moving along, we're we're gonna jump back into talking about how we view nature. We had got um, to the point in the discussion, I, sp- I suppose, where we were like, "Oh, isn't it just incredible how people just think nature is kind of outside of politics?" <laughs> <laughs> to the point we get to fairly often on Radio Reversal because <laughs> it's all politics, people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so yeah, we we tend to view nature, especially I suppose in natural disasters, this comes to the fore a lot, as um outside of ourselves, kind of above it all, mm. away from human worlds and, and only kind of colliding with the human world in moments of great violence. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's almost, you know, this this time when we actually become aware of nature mm. when we can normally afford to ignore it, particularly mm-hmm. those of us who live in cities and think of ourselves as especially apart from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's an interesting point which you've got here, Joe, which I think is really fascinating, that although we 
continue to construct nature as this thing that's outside of ourselves, we also can't seem to resist the urge to anthropomorphise yeah, it yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> hence naming naming storms and cyclones and so forth. And um, I saw something on Facebook yesterday. Um, I can't remember like by what what page this was, but some page had written a thing about the cyclone. It began. It was like an, a letter to mm. Cyclone Debbie. It began, dear Debbie, and. Um, yeah, we. I mean, all of the coverage is just like Debbie did this. Debbie, Debbie did. <laughs> Debbie did. Um, <laughs> Debbie did Queensland. Yeah, Debbie uh, did Bowen. Yeah. yeah, Debbie did Bowen. <laughs> uh, and we talk about, in a way, even like nature is um, somehow personified. So the cruelty mm. or the heartlessness of nature, um, and in a way, that's kind of doing the same distancing work as as thinking of nature as apart from us. It's uh, conceptualizing it as as an entity that will kind of exert its will on us just as a bully or a despot would exert their will upon us. Um, but it's denying our own role in constituting nature and how nature is um, is a social science term coming up, always already part of our human <laughs> world. <laughs> yeah. Um, and interestingly, I think sometimes sometimes that, um, that anthropomorphic Morphizing. I always struggle with this word, so apologies, people. Um, I put extra P's or not enough P's in it when I, when I say it. Um, but I think sometimes it's also how we acknowledge our impact on nature when we talk about, like, Mother Nature's revenge or something, as though this, mm. is, this is the earth attempting to, to overthrow us or to, um, or to punish us for our many, many sins against her. Mm. Um, but I think it's also part of how we make sense of a complex system. You know, I think if we ascribe something human qualities... We can give them motivation, so we can explain it in terms of things like revenge mm-hmm. or um, or cruelty or um, vengeance or, or something else very dramatic. Um, and I think we this is also how we know them, right? If if something is we give it human qualities, then it's in a way like us, which means that maybe we can understand it, and mm-hmm. maybe we can predict it, and maybe it's a way that we make sense out of randomness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about um, in. Like, and this is a whole other topic, but in a lot of um, uh, South American uh, indigenous cultures, it's mm. a very much like um, mountains, for instance, will be seen as particular entities or spirits or what have you. But in a way, it's a more kind of integrated system. Like they have always seen nature as like part of their or the, the natural and human world is um, very a lot less separate, I suppose, than we have with ours. And in that sense, like I feel as though there's a more uh, reciprocal relationship almost mm. with nature or a more, uh, you know, yeah, I guess reciprocal is the right word. Whereas we tend to react with quite a lot of anger or um, confusion mm. or like, how could you do this to me? Yeah, uh, yeah or, or feeling or, or weird like overblown guilt about the sins we've committed against the earth <laughs> and how she's rising up. Yeah, and I mean, I, I wonder how much of this comes back to this kind of um, almost Judeo-Christian um, mentality about how, you know, it was humanity's job to go forth and multiply and kind of dominate the earth. Mm-hmm. And this is just... And I think it's really easy for us to kind of believe that about ourselves and and perhaps even notions of the Anthropocene in a way also reify that conceptualization because it's we have dominated the earth to such an extent mm-hmm. that we have fundamentally changed it mm-hmm. um, and then all of a sudden it's 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 an uprising against us right yeah, like right. We, we were supposed to be the boss and and now that's being challenged yeah. or um, subverted in in some sort of sneaky way. But even that is doing interesting work and in obscuring uh, the you know the processes of um, 
human-led or not human-led but the way the way that certain things practices and um, processes damage the earth and the climate to such an extent that they tend to um yeah they they facilitate or these natural weather events can sort of be traced back to those processes it's not that we as like neutral humankind have done this (laughs) it's that like a particular you know particular industries or you know particular class or the not even I mean it's not even useful I don't think to point the finger at any like group of people and Mm. be like it's them to blame it's yeah it's just the way we organize have organized our um our global economic system really yeah yeah and I mean I was I was trying to dig into this I guess some of the other work that this process does of anthropomorphizing nature. And I found this study by Simona Sachi, Paolo River and Marco Brambilla called When Mother Nature Rises Up, Anthropomorphizing Nature. I'm messing that up each time. Reduces support for <laughs> natural disasters. So. It sounds fine. Okay. Um, and they, so they set out to study how the tendency to anthropomorphize nature affects social behavior. And they concluded that, and this is a quote from the paper, that the results of their two studies consistently showed a significant negative relationship between the anthropomorphism of nature and pro-social intentions. So the results revealed that people who... The the more people are likely to ascribe human characteristics to nature, the less they're likely to help victims. That's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there there hasn't been many studies on this and I was feeling... Like, I feel pretty sceptical about it because I suppose... um, I'm just a bit wary of anything that tries to draw a straight line between one particular kind mm-hmm. of thought pattern or yeah. construct and and one kind of behavioural outcome because yeah. I just think people are a lot more complicated than that. But mm-hmm. um, And the, the authors, I think, acknowledge that in, in their paper. But I did think that that's really interesting, the idea that if we... Because maybe if we're, if we're making it human, then we're making it responsible. Mm-hmm. And if the cyclone is responsible rather than, you know, a series of... of um, like our political economy, a pattern of settlement. Um, if if that's if the cyclone's responsible, then maybe we don't have to be responsible for cleaning up or helping out. Or like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I would, it's fascinating. I would love to know more about that. Um, yeah, weird. There's also, I mean, it's it's really interesting just to even think about how people respond to victims, like mm. the whether like who gets who gets to be a victim and who like there's a there can be like a weird amount of victim blaming going on mm. sometimes um with you know why why did so why did they drive why did they do this why did they do that uh yeah it's fascinating but then some people do get held up as as heroes for sticking around or for I mean I guess when you go in to save somebody else it's all like another that's yeah. pretty <laughs> I'm not going to critique that I guess my say <laughs> uh, but yeah really really interesting dynamics going on um with who who gets to be the victim and and who is like the guy on the jet ski being stupid <laughs> yeah yeah which you know kind of then gets reified in its own kind of heroism yeah. you know that's that's the Aussie larrikin right mm-hmm. yeah doing his thing and I think um there's a an onus on victims or people who've been affected by natural disasters to perform in a certain way as mm. well so um you know you've one of the articles that we both read I think was about the emotion work of a disaster which involves um, being stoic in certain contexts. So, yep. for instance, at work, you're not supposed to break down um, or you're after a certain time period, you're meant to be, like, okay again. And um, it also involves, like, the caring work, the supporting other people, um, food, offering food, shelter, um, cleaning up and so on. Mm. But it also involves, I think, particularly in the in the moment, like performing distress for a, a camera. Oh, totally. Which journalists do a lot. And... Um, you, you know, they always put 
the microphones in people's faces and say, so are you feeling devastated? Yeah, <laughs> yeah please cry, but just a little bit, not yeah. too much. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I think the I think the the labour part of that is really interesting and um, how um, you've got a note here, Joe, that um, it's in the, the context of a disaster where um, we can see men and we see it with <laughs> politicians performing this kind of care work and, yeah. and labour. And I'm like, when was the last time Malcolm Turnbull ever scrubbed a floor? Right. Like, seriously, <laughs> let's let's think about when the last time that happened would have been. Yeah. And yet we're treated to these these pictures of him down on his hands and knees and with a scrub brush. It's yeah. like, come on, buddy. Like, yeah. let's be serious about this. Yeah, I wrote in the notes um, that it was interesting to think about the gendered aspects of this. So my instinct is that disaster aftermath is one of the few times when men can perform that caring labour without it being girly. And I wrote, um, why? Are disasters manly? <laughs> <laughs> I think so, though, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think they are here. Like, uh, particularly in this in the Australian con. you know, when we talk about this, because I, I think the idea of stoicism and, and man against nature is, mm. is a really masculine mm-hmm. construct of what, of what the Australian bush man kind of thing is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I, and I think all of a sudden when you're moving mud in volumes, that's somehow different than if you are scrubbing dirt that accumulates on a regular mm, basis. Yes, yeah. indeed. <laughs> um, so we earlier in the show, I mentioned a letter I'd seen on Facebook to Cyclone Debbie and Nat has just found that letter, <laughs> which perfectly encapsulates lots of what we've been talking about this morning. Yeah, so. I think this basically sums up the whole narrative we've mm. been unpicking. Dear Debbie, you won't be missed. You swept us off our feet, but we've survived your type before and will no doubt again. We won't be stopped by you. Our roofs are, b- are blown, fences down, crops uprooted. True, we are tired and shaken, but we've got this. We'll rebuild and we'll recover. We'll stand strong and tall, even better than before, because we are Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> there is there is a period there. I'm not, like, just being dramatic. Because we are, period, Queensland. P.S., but we need a holiday first. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, there's a lot there. There's hey. a lot there, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, the re- rebuilding, the resilience, uh, the anthropomorphising. Um, wow, it's yeah. like they're listening to the show. <laughs> yeah, and like, like the, the, there's kind of this romantic element to it, and not just the whole swept us off our feet thing, mm. but like, you know, yeah, this has happened, but we're, but we're gonna we're gonna recover. We'll stand strong and tall. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and also, I think, you know, it shows goes back to some of the identity work that we were talking about earlier about how, um, in the aftermath of a disaster, or or even as it occurs, I suppose we can see these new communities form, or, mm. or old bonds become stronger again, um, and uh, new senses of, of who we are and how we relate to others can emerge. And, you know, this idea of like a Queenslander identity being mm. being somehow solidified by mm. um, by a shared experience of a cyclone yeah. or an ex-cyclone. Um, and I, I do just wonder what, what work that is doing. Mm. I think it's, I mean, earlier in the show I mentioned that I felt like the whole experience of Cyclone Debbie had solidified this region-city disconnect, mm. but I think it also... At a, at a larger level, solidifies the disconnect between state Queensland and, say, the rest of the country, particularly New South Wales or Victoria, and that like yeah. we are, um, you know, just extreme weather and we're hardy, and those they wouldn't understand. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I got to shout out to that weird liminal space of northern New South Wales. Mm-hmm. That, That's true. Know, yes. Yeah, is is more more Queensland than New South Wales, I suppose, in that particular narrative. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, yes, I think uh, in terms of kind of that social as social bonds and so forth, I wanted to mention another little snippet um, 
which came I remembered when I was thinking about um, this this topic for the show this week. So in uh, the 2011 floods um, in West End, a group of residents who had been volunteering and cleaning up had a sausage sizzle um, down near some of the new apartment blocks. And um, for those familiar with West End, it's um, they're very close to the river, so some of them had been flooded quite badly and they had a sausage sizzle and things were a bit um, less flooded and invited all the residents who lived in those apartment blocks to come and have a sausage and, um, you know, they'd help with the clean-up and, and so on. And those residents were really surprised to have been invited mm. because they just thought, oh, we thought you didn't like us, you Aww. know. We thought that um, we just assumed that you wouldn't invite us because uh, there's such a strong divide in West End between new residents who live in new apartment blocks and old residents who live in, like, the old West End. Wow. Um, but in that moment I think the goodwill was flowing around the flood yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I think that's that's so interesting and yeah and I, and I, I suppose there's there's opportunities in that right mm-hmm. like um again um coming back to to Comfrey's work I've got a quote here because I think it's really powerful um they say that the power of the local and the web of detailed associations in the local are integral to the implementation of any strategy of flood or disease containment, disaster management or recovery. And these associations are what give action meaning and make action possible. Mm-hmm. These associations of people, materials and places are also what gives rise to expressions of solidarity to be found in almost all disaster sites, often against a prevailing, centrally driven culture of individualism and self-reliance. There you have it. So <laughs> maybe in these, you know, in these moments that are catastrophic and painful and filled with loss and grief and many other terrible things but it's maybe it starts to to undo that dominant narrative mm-hmm. that we have all kind of internalized in you know 30 years of neoliberalism that we are all these um atomized individuals mm-hmm. without community mm-hmm. and maybe this is what proves to us that actually we aren't mm-hmm. yeah and i but i also found it interesting because um this is something so rarely talked about that there's a divide f- between two groups of residents mm. but in that moment of being forced by circumstances to interact with one another, it was spoken for possibly like the first time yeah, for a lot of wow. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they kind of forced these divisions to the surface, but also challenged them in interesting ways. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. But I, yeah, and I mean, I think the, the flip side of that is that um, when we draw people together in a way that we're all, we're, we're all having the shared experience, we're all affected by this thing and, mm-hmm. and it can you know, bridge divides as as happened in that particular case. But it can also create this division between the people who are affected and the people who aren't affected. Yes, yeah. And so even within formerly quite tight-knit communities, the people who've had the shared experience of being flooded or displaced mm. um, might then feel like they can no longer relate to mm. the people who weren't affected because it's become such a dominant feature of mm-hmm. how they understand themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yes, for the last very short section of our show, <laughs> we've got a lot to cram in. We're talking about natural disasters this morning. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to touch really quickly on, I guess, um, the fact that different people experience disasters in different ways according to inequalities, right? Mm. So the um, I read a great chapter for this, which is actually just available online through, like, Springerlink. And it's um it's called Bloated Bodies: The Political Economy of Hurricane Katrina Recovery. Um, so a lot of my examples here are about Hurricane Katrina, but I think it is really interesting because it would have been a different event if it happened in a rich white city. Mm. And um, there are so many aspects. This it even starts with how cities are built. So I'll just read out a quote really quickly from this chapter. 
Um, so in its 288-year history, New Orleans has had 27 major river or hurricane-induced disasters at a rate of one about every 11 years. A pattern of three responses runs through that history. After each event, the city rebuilt and often expanded. Small differences in elevation determined the location of the well-to-do and the poor, and, levy- and levees were rebuilt and often raised. Inequity in the location of neighbourhoods and in the distribution of flooding burdens also appears early. Wow. So basically the, the white rich white people were moving further and further out from each flood. And it was, yeah, so it, it, it's about like even how cities are built. and Yeah, and of course, you know, in, in the case of... In the case of um, in the case of Katrina, this is this is an area where the sort of natural defences of that landscape are constantly being eroded mm-hmm. by offshore drilling mm-hmm. and, and the clearing of mangroves and yep. um, the damaging to the, like, those yep. natural wetland systems that can normally exactly. provide protection. And the people benefiting from that are not the people who are then facing that further exposure yep. to those risks. Oil spills in the Gulf, yep. all of those screwed up things. And um, this chapter talked a lot um, about how kind of privatisation and, and the, the slashing of uh, public budgets meant mm-hmm. that the infrastructure was not up to scratch. Um, yeah, there are... It's a really fascinating history. There were so many bureaucratic bungles that meant that people weren't given the right knowledge or the right resources. Um, it hit towards the end of the welfare pay cycle, so a lot of people had absolutely no money, mm. like nothing to fall back on. Um, and so, yeah, they stayed. A lot of people stayed and, and they died. And uh, so... Yeah, the the kind of staying in a sense is in this in the sense was absolutely not a choice for a lot of people. Yeah, and of course, it, even in in the places where people did go to um, sort of evacuation centres and, mm. and community centres, they were not equipped mm-hmm. to deal with the amount of people who needed mm-hmm. help and assistance. Mm-hmm. And then there was sickness and and all sorts of terrible things um, mm-hmm. as a result. And and most of those things were preventable. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think what which makes it really difficult, and and the collective trauma literature suggests that um, it's actually much harder for people to cope if they identify that the reason why they're suffering is because someone messed up, mm. or because of someone's malice, or because of their neglect. Mm. Like that is actually harder for people oh, to yeah, deal with. I can imagine. Um, and I think also in the case of of Katrina, where we know that it was poor black people, really did come down to the the, that the lives of poor black people um, and other poor people of color just don't matter as much yeah and they know that right like they know that that's what's happening and so that's its own kind of violence yes on top of what they're already suffering yeah absolutely just knowing that no one cares (laughs) yeah that that no one cares and that this is happening to them because they are seen as expendable Mm -hmm. yeah um which is horrible yep george Mm. bush don't like black people that's basically it (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh yeah and then afterwards um the low-income housing in the city was the last to be rebuilt um The shortage of housing actually gave developers and landlords an um, excuse to hike the rent. <laughs> so rent actually in New Orleans went up 35% on average the year following Katrina. Mm. Um, and then some areas were sort of built according to other interests. So um, former public housing areas were rebuilt with much more private homes and commercial businesses. So you can always trace this, like, the private interests all the way through this disaster. Really interesting um, I really recommend that chapter, Bloated Bodies. Maybe I'll put a link to it on our Facebook page. But yeah. it's a very good example, I think, of how these disasters are, not, are never politically neutral and nor are no. they natural. And, and how that that process is making the next disaster, yeah. again, so much worse for that particular group of people. Absolutely. They are increasingly exposed and yeah. and increasingly vulnerable mm-hmm. um, because that poverty is just... And that those spatial injustices are just getting worse. Mm. 
Wow. <laughs> Cheerful way to okay. wrap up the show. So thanks for listening. <laughs> Hope that you um, have not been too depressed by that. But um, yeah, I think the takeaway is that natural natural disasters don't really exist. They are always produced and they're always political um, Yes, that would be my <laughs> takeaway. Yep. So, so never say natural disasters never. without putting the scare quotes around never. it. Never. <laughs>